she's always been the type of person that just says things and she just speaks her mind. I guess that has a little bit to do with not having a formal education. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm James. And I'm Jonathan. Surprise, bitch. It's not a surprise they knew it was coming. <laughs> well, we, we told them so. We told you we had our season finale, but we are back with a, a postscript of sorts. And for those of you who don't know us, welcome. If you're here just for Gilmore Girls, which is what this episode is, welcome. We do stray from tennis ever so often. So it's our third TV episode. At this point, it feels like it's something we'll continue to do for as long as we do the tennis podcast. If you're new to us and your interests overlap with tennis, well, you've got a treasure trove of stuff to go back and look at. <laughs> you Well, first of all, you have 63 episodes to go back and listen to. <laughs> do it over Christmas break, Hanukkah break. Hanukkah starts on Christmas Eve this year. So I'm looking forward to a kind of a more casual episode. I know... A lot of our episodes are really crammed with tennis, trying just trying to get through everything in Lord, a reasonable amount of time. You should have heard him admonish me for all my categories for previous episodes. <laughs> now, look, we're not doing categories. It's just too structured. I feel like we just ram too many things into the podcast and lots gets lost. I, that's exactly how he sounds. Okay. Well, okay. I'll quibble with the accent, but that is what I probably <laughs> said. <laughs> So you came up with the agenda. You were tasked with doing this. I was. And I... It needed a lot of reworking. Wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, it took me a while. I dragged my feet. But we have been fairly prolific of late, I think. And uh, we are going to afford ourselves a short break for Christmas. In uh, planning this episode, we kind of look at it from a what worked, what didn't work perspective with the revival. And you had started with what didn't work, which I felt was a far too negative way. Oh, see, I <laughs> to 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 start this episode because it went on for a while, <laughs> justifiably so. There were a lot of things that were like, "Huh," about the revival. Well, I feel like it would be nice to end with, on an optimistic note, you know, about what actually did work quite well, because there was a lot. Yeah, we'll still do that. Okay, but we're gonna start with what worked. So. Number one, I think for both of us, we talked about it all through watching the four episodes. Lauren Graham is what worked. Lauren Graham is the absolute MVP of Gilmore Girls A Year in the Life. Is that what it's called? These four mini movies that kind of stretched the form of Gilmore Girls and challenged us a little bit. But Lauren Graham is back playing Lorelai Gilmore and she is just such a pro. I was just in absolute wonder, and the longer episodes allowed for some longer scenes and really allowed her to stretch out a bit. Now, you've drawn my tongue, and I'm going to get messy right off the bat, because A, I've not always been a convert to Lauren Graham and her acting, mm. and through watching Gilmore Girls, the duration of it, the first go-round, and then Parenthood, and now this being the culmination of me being fully on board the LG train. 
<laughs> so there's that. Get that out yeah. of the way. That's A. B, it's magnified even more because she's acting opposite Alexis Bledel, who has shown no growth as an actress since her original run on the show. It was so much about what was wrong there. See, maybe you're onto something. I told you. <laughs> now you're going into the what was wrong. Okay. I'm going to frame it just from the LG perspective. She came off that much better because Bledel was lacking, in my opinion. Mm, I don't think so, because I don't think that makes you look like a better performer if the people around you are worse. No, because... I think it makes you a better performer if you're acting against, like, Kelly Bishop, who is at such a high level. It mm-hmm. makes you look even better. I do have you writing on the agenda, Lauren Graham MVP slash carried so many important scenes. Now, I know she didn't carry those scenes with Kelly Bishop, so I know (laughs) what you meant by that. So don't come with this mess. No, I think, you know, we, you and I are not performers. Like, we've never acted before, but I imagine that the Gilmore Girls dialogue is not only technically difficult, but also really hard to pull off comically and, like, to inject emotion into it. There's so many words to get through just from a technical standpoint, right? So in those, you know, the coffee shop scenes, um, her sitting down with Rory, she helps carry those scenes. And she she has for a long time. Because Alexis was very inexperienced when the show first mm-hmm. started. So She was new to acting. And yeah. I think where it fell short a little bit, A, the writing, they wrote her poorly for this revival. And also, you didn't really get the sense that she'd grown much of, much as an actress since the show went off the air. Right, because that worked in when Alexis was young, mm-hmm. you know, because Rory was sweet and she was naive and things just kind of happened for her. But at 32, it's not that cute. And we're, I'm 32, so it's doubly not cute. <laughs> <laughs> right. But back to Lauren Graham. I know I actually, jumping to the very end, I really liked the Wild storyline. And I know a lot of people said that that is not something that Lorelai would be into. Like, it's totally out of character. But she obviously went through a kind of personal crisis, right? She's a dramatic person. So we're not doing a blow-by-blow rundown as to what happened throughout the four movies. That's not what this is. So we're going to assume that you've already watched Gilmore Girls at this point. The entire show is a spoiler. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) we've given you like a month to watch it. But the wild storyline for me, while I felt like the reference may have been dated by like one or two years, it really, really worked because she went about it in a typical Lorelai fashion because it was totally half-assed, <laughs> you know, like she did get her ass out there. It was clumsy. Uh, mm-hmm. She tripped herself up, not necessarily half-assed, but just couldn't get out of her own way. And half the time or at least half the screen time was spent trying to pack that freaking bag. But when I say half-assed, I meant that she didn't actually do the wild trip. Okay. (laughs) Which, I mean, that would be absurd if Lorelai Gilmore actually did the hiking. That that would never happen. So the fact that she was able to reach this epiphany while actually skipping out on what she had intended to accomplish rung very true to the character to me. Because... You know, Lorelai, what we love about her is that she eats a lot of junk food and she drinks coffee and most of her time is spent talking. I mean, she's a hard worker what in I'm her hearing, chosen career. What I'm hearing is what you like about Lorelai Gilmore. Those are all things 
<laughs> that you can identify with. Wow. Wow. <laughs> well, that is true, I guess. Yeah, junk food, coffee, talking. Yeah, I mean, less so the talking. I talk for for a job, really, for this. <laughs> In my normal life, I'm actually a lot less verbose. I didn't really care for the wild thing. Okay. It felt out of place. How many times have we actually seen over the course of the show the the set being taken elsewhere out of Stars Hollow to something that's kind of wacky? There mm. was a spring break stuff with Paris and Rory, right? Yeah. And maybe a couple other instances. They drove, Lorelai and Rory drove to Portsmouth, New Hampshire mm-hmm. and stayed in that like cat hotel. Yes. <laughs> But they're, they're very few and far between, and this felt like a big departure for the show. But one of the ways in which it succeeded is that it led to one of the iconic scenes of the entire series when Lauren Graham Lorelai calls her mother, who is still in bed at noon mm. because she's still depressed over Richard's death. And they'd had this big falling out. And it led to one of the more tender moments of the series. Like, this is what I've been waiting for. That's what I was waiting for at the end of season seven. To me, Lorelai and Emily are the the most important relationship on the show. Like, they're the most dramatically rich relationship. And the writers have done a lot of very serious work with them. Like, that's they treat that relationship on the show as drama. Not It's like drama surrounded by jokes, not the other way around. But obviously Lorelai and Rory are intended to be the main relationship on that show. They are, but for me, they're like, there's not enough real conflict there. And why is it that that relationship falls short of the Kelly Bishop-Lauren Graham dynamic, do you think? Well, I mean, first of all, these two actresses are just really operating at such a high level when they're playing with each other. And also, like, there's serious hurt between the two of them that comes through. There's there's history. Yeah, it's like Lorelai and Rory are sort of working for the same thing. Like, they're, they're really similar, right? But Lorelai and Emily, there's... God, there's so much tragedy that's gone on between them that just is, like, really compelling to me. But what really elevates them is the quality of the actresses. Mm-hmm. That's where I was leading you, leading you to. Well, I mentioned that. that, yeah. Yeah. I'll use the example of when Lorelai comes home and finds that Rory has given up her virginity to Dean. Mm-hmm. That scene was some of the best acting you'll see Lauren Graham do. Mm-hmm. It was acted to perfection. And you're given the opportunity then, as Rory... To, to meet her at least halfway in that right, scene. Right. And it doesn't happen. I rewatched it today. Something that struck me was there's Rory. She's 19. She's not a child. But yet she still came off as a 13-year-old in that scene, mm. which I think was a major failing of that dynamic to be able to elevate it to the, to the Kelly Bishop, Lauren Graham type dynamic not to my, not to say that there weren't really great moments between the two. Oh yeah but that was just more okay when the show was in its original run and alexis hadn't gone off to do madmen do other things and mm. still come back stuck as 
a 17-year-old Rory in a 32-year-old body. Okay. I think also what... There's a big difference because the show allows Emily and Lorelai to get really dark. And to me, (laughs) this is going to sound weird for a show like Gilmore Girls, which is fairly light in general. The best parts of Gilmore Girls for me are the characters and the situations that get ugly, like Paris, like Emily and Lorelai's fights are so intense and got darker than ever during this this revival the fight after richard's funeral was horrifying (laughs) it really like it was very very compelling to watch but my god the ghastly things that they said to each other it felt very real to me it's not unlike stuff they'd said to each other before though i think i think a lot of it felt more raw because it had been so long but they've had their fair share of blow-ups like when when emily comes into luke's to find out why he hasn't gotten back together with Lorelai. Mm. And she's going off on him and then he just hits Lorelai on speed dial and she just comes over and starts cursing her mother out. Right. And then she climaxes the scene by telling her to shut up, screaming at her to <laughs> shut up that if you if she ever wants her opinion on anything, she'll ask and until that time she needs to shut up. Like that was something else. Mm. I mean, like there's a the darkness of Richard's death hovering over the situation and like the emotional Stuff that comes along with that because of how poorly Lorelai handled that remembrance. <laughs> <laughs> it was also a very, very unfair by Emily to put people on the spot to come up with this story. To give her a test? Right. <laughs> My point in saying that is I felt like they've always gone there with each other. They've always gone too far. Yeah, that's where they're similar. <laughs> Emily is, plays very dirty and Lorelai will like go down in the mud with her. Lorelai will just needle and needle and needle and needle. Mm. I think I can see where your allegiances lie, based on how we're talking. Inter-meaning? Well, see, I have always seen Emily as a frenemy, and not a not the hero. You know what I mean? I don't see Lorelai as a hero either, but Emily can be very, very cruel. And I love the character for it, but I would not want her as a mother. <laughs> I mean, and who would, really? Yeah, but then you go around, like, you know what comes along with being Emily Gilmore's daughter. And then you still find yourself in situations where you have to take her money. And she genuinely cares for you. Like, you've just got to find, as a child, a better way to navigate that situation. Mm. Yeah. That's the way I've always felt about it. Lorelai always brought a level of immaturity to their relationship that I didn't feel helped their relationship. I agree, because actually the entire origin story of Lorelai Gilmore III is Lorelai escaping this oppressive situation. But there was a bit of poor little rich girl there that she just appeared in this foreign town, you know, 30 miles away from where she grew up and was embraced as if she was, I don't know, homeless, like... (laughs) It it was hard to feel really that bad because she always had something to fall back on. She could have married Christopher. She could have divorced him in two years. Would that have been the end of it? <laughs> no, I'm not saying that and she should have, have done that. Sure, but then and still, this is one of the undercurrents with Gilmore Girls, right? Like the this strife, the safety net. Yeah, 
the strife that all these characters face, there's always something that's going to keep them from living under the bridge. Let's talk about other things we liked, though, because that's what this segment is about. You just want to talk about Paris Geller, don't you? Yeah, of course I want to talk about Paris. Paris, to me, is possibly the most important character on Gilmore Girls. The whole series. The most important character. The most important. More so than Emily Gilmore. Possibly. More so than Lorelai Gilmore. (laughs) You know why? Because Paris is... Paris just burns through the screen. She does. See what I did there? Paris is burning. I got it. Yeah, Yeah. okay. (laughs) I didn't at first. (laughs) (laughs) Paris is ambition unleashed. She's like the anti-Rory. She's Rory's evil twin. Everything came easy to Rory. She got into Harvard. She got into Yale. When she got to Chilton, she became the Queen Bee. After a little bit of conflict, a little bit of strife, she became valedictorian. And Paris lays her goals out on the table, has epic, epic meltdowns, becomes utterly monstrous many times throughout the series i think you see a lot of what you wish you could be in paris (laughs) i wish you i think you wish your tantrums and meltdowns were as good and as well executed as paris or were as productive (laughs) i mean paris is played perfectly by liza weil who annoys me on how to get away with murder to be honest and there was a little bit of worry that we wouldn't be able to unsee Bonnie mm-hmm. in this revival. But, you know, give her two scenes and that was through the door because Paris came back with a vengeance. She sure did. How, how, how do you kick that door closed in those heels on a slippery tile floor? With your left foot. Is she left-handed, maybe? I'm wondering if kicking with your left foot is indicative of how you hold a pen. (laughs) (laughs) The thing with why I like Paris so much and just the existence of Paris is that rarely are women characters allowed to be so ambitious and messy, but also be seen as a character that we root for. Because she, she could have been the villain. She could have been Rory's arch nemesis and they become great friends and they're allowed to coexist a large part of that has to do with the acting of Liza Wow. right but I mean it was a conscious choice to write her in in such a way I'm sure yeah but part of what humanizes her is the comedy that comes along with Paris and that could easily be lost with a less able actress right an actress who didn't see how funny this could be right and paris was supposed to be not a recurring character if i remember correctly she actually stuck around because people responded to the performance and liza while auditioned for rory and came close to getting it but they gave her this job instead maybe she should have done both roles like berta (laughs) and gypsy the parent trap (laughs) oh my god berta and gypsy (laughs) make no mistake though Paris is a psychopath. I mean, she does feel emotion. She's aware of the emotions she should feel. (laughs) And she goes to therapy to try and feel them. (laughs) No, but Paris has passion. 
you know, in that scene in the bathroom, she's like, what am I feeling? What am I feeling? What is this? What is this? And then she describes it, and then she still doesn't really know if that's mm-hmm. really what it is. Right. She's clinical. Very. We also had all these cameos. There were so many characters that just got, like, a, a screenshot mm-hmm. <laughs> in the revival that played, you know, more prominent roles in the series. I guess when you're limited to four movie type things and you're trying to tell this story you can't bring everybody in we got peter krause jason ritter and may whitman all from parenthood making guest appearances on the revival meaning there was lorelei's brother her lover and her daughter (laughs) from parenthood and lauren graham's current boyfriend yes peter krause right yeah they're together in real life i effing love parenthood and sarah braverman who lauren graham played was so messy and similar but not really to lorelei but i just absolutely adored her like she's going on this wild expedition and then lo and behold who's the park ranger (laughs) (laughs) jason ritter there were also all these cameos from bunheads which we actually have never seen i don't know i don't even know what that is mindy from friday night lights Tyra's sister was, I guess, was a character on Bunheads, which I did not know. She was in a wild scene. And Sutton Foster, the great, the someday legendary Sutton Foster, was also on Bunheads. And she was the only redeeming thing from that interminable Star Ho- Stars Hollow the musical. It wasn't that bad. It, it wasn't was, all bad. It was that bad. It lasted, I think, about an hour and 45 no, minutes, it went def- if I'm correct. <laughs> it definitely went on way too long. But the concept behind it, Gilmore Girls has always had these productions. Yes. Always yeah. had something going on in town. So this kind of made sense. But to, my God, devote so much time to it. It was it was like <laughs> watching They Shoot Horses, don't they? You know, that there was the <laughs> They Shoot Gilmore's, don't right. they, episode, right? It was indulgent. It felt like I was being held captive <laughs> against my will. <laughs> the scene where Emily goes into full-on meltdown mode at the DAR meeting when they're interviewing Serena. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, that... Miss, Miss Country Club Serena, which is not the Serena we're normally talking about. <laughs> that poor woman. Serena did not deserve that, though. <laughs> It wasn't about her. Emily is sitting there listening to all these inane questions. And in the middle of it, she gets up, goes over to the to the confections stand <laughs> in the meeting. Mm-hmm. She's like, no, don't like that cookie. Don't like that. She eventually picks up some kind of sweet, takes it back to the table. And then one, the, the head bitch in charge, she shoots a napkin across the table to Emily. <laughs> And she's like, crumbs, Emily. (laughs) And then she just goes into this bullshit tirade where she calls everything bullshit, which you never hear Emily say the Mm -mm, word bullshit. mm -mm. Well, that was not allowed on the WB, but now they're on Netflix. They can say anything. Mm. I think that was really the only time they stretched the boundaries of of profanity. yeah, Yeah. For the show. Oh, no, I thought it was believable. Because she was no, it in was, a crisis. But if she but... was going to be like cursing a blue streak saying, fuck this, fuck that. Oh, I feel like that may no. have been a bit much. I mean, she's having a crisis, but this is still Emily Gilmore, the daughter of the American Revolution. 
I mean, I- I'm actually so glad that they went after the DAR. Because all they really want to know is, you know, is was your grand uncle times 10 a signer of the Declaration of Independence? Did he come over on the Mayflower or some shit like that? We went through this with Blanche Devereaux on the Golden Girls, yes, right? the Daughters of the Confederacy. Oh, a which has different. Its, its own, um, shall I say, difficult history. We're on the cusp of getting to what didn't work, which will be populated mostly by Rory stories. <laughs> and linked to that... One of the last bits we have here about what worked was how hot Rory's exes are now. That is something that worked for me. (laughs) Dean never looked better. I mean, you really can't lose. Like, well, you can because you could be having 10 children by the time you're 40 out in some Scranton (laughs) suburb, Pennsylvania suburb with Dean. No matter how hot he looks, like that's no life. Uh, Logan Hunsberger, who is a great a douchebag, but uh, rising out of that bed, looking fine as ever. I mean, did he leave Yale and go directly to CrossFit? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We watched him for years on The Good Wife, so that has kind of softened Logan for us. Yeah. We weren't as predisposed to hate his douche face because Carrie is not that much of a douche on, on The Good Wife. But... I didn't know he had all that going on underneath. And then Jess Mariano. Is that his last name? Yeah. Yeah. Jess played by Milo Ventimiglia. I mean, there's just, there's just nothing to be said about how hot he is now. Well, we, I, you know, actually there's plenty to be said. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he's a little bit too buff for me, but one of those scenes where he's talking to Rory and they can, you can just see how well he's filling out those jeans. Like, I just want to know, is there any room for me in those jeans? (laughs) (laughs) That is a genuine song. (laughs) Oh my God. Not a genuine song, but the the R&B singer genuine. I am aware who that is. In those jeans is what it's called. Uh, Look it up. And there wasn't much room, but I would find some. There was not a lot of room. Actually, that brings up another interesting thing I read. This Is Us is having a credibility problem having Milo Ventimiglia be a dad in the 70s and 80s because he is literally too hot. I read about this. (laughs) His body is anachronistic because it's too sculpted, too hairless, clearly the product of new millennium diets, right? But we thank thee. You digress. (laughs) I digress. I mean, I don't care that it's anachronistic. At least least he's not wearing that horrid mustache in the revival. Thank you. The wedding sequence is probably one of your favorite bits about the whole revival, right? That was sublime. It it was just beautifully shot, scored. The song was gorgeous. It was just all the pageantry that I wanted. It had the whimsy, the beauty, the cinematography, the nostalgia. It uh, made you feel things that this was finally happening. Mm-hmm. Even if you're not somebody who's been on the... What, what do they call them? Lucali? I have Do no they idea. have a, a moniker or a name or whatever? I, I really don't know. Even if you haven't been on the Luke and Lorelai train the entire time, even if you're not that invested, it was still something. Fresh off of that scene where Lauren comes back from the wild trip and Luke is convinced that she's about to leave him <laughs> and he acts his face off and she plays off him and they, they have this really tender moment in the kitchen. And then that wedding scene. It was it was really well done. 
and possibly something that was thought of or conceived for season seven, if it were to have been a finale, written by the Paladinos. But then, heading, we can head into now what didn't work. Mm -hmm. Those last four fucking words. Mom. Yeah? I'm pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) Let's try that again. Mom. Yeah? I'm terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Because you decide on your mother's wedding day, you know all the shit she's been through. All the shit you've put her through. And she's finally found a man that she can marry. And on her... That sounds bad that she can marry, but that she wants to marry. (laughs) And feels like it's, as she says, a good fit. And on that wedding day... After this beautiful sequence, you wake up in the morning. Well, you haven't woken up. You're still awake. It's the morning. You're sitting there with champagne bottles. And you then tell your mother, who still has to go get married again that day, mind <laughs> you, because there was a fake, a real but fake wedding. It wasn't the real thing, mm. right? As far as the public is concerned. That you're pregnant. Like, is there no end to Rory's narcissism and selfishness? Well, I think we found out. There is not. So this brings up a favorite topic of yours with regard to this revival. Yes. So the character of Rory has always been a bit problematic, but it was thrown into relief on the revival. Because I think I understand what they were going for with her story. But I just, I don't think it worked. So I think they were trying to show... This young woman, this millennial, kind of at a loss. She's wandering. She's not really sure where she belongs or what makes her happy or who makes her happy. And she's moved back home to kind of find her center. So there's, there could have been richness to that story. But instead, they mock us. Us yeah, millennials. They the mock, make it's fun. Us. Yeah. She's 32. She graduated college in 2007 like we did. Mm -hmm. I'm still 31, by the way, Rory. And you can fuck yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm 32. That's that's really what that was about. But the thing is, it just, it's not that cute at 32. No, and also, I don't find it funny. I'm 32. I I live on my own with you. mm -hmm. I pay my own bills. I struggle. Like, I've got credit card bills student loans, all this stuff. And she just has people offering her money, houses, cars, anything she could possibly need to Mm -hmm. to find herself at 32. And yet she's still lost and still a complete total mess. And then the writers have these, this group of so-called millennials that they're mocking on the show. You know, oh, you're back in Stars Hollow. You should go hang out with the millennials. Mm -hmm. They're all at home being losers. They all live at home with their parents. Yes. Okay. So there are a few things here. First of all, one of an issue that I've always had with Gilmore Girls is money and this extreme privilege that in the first go around was not really acknowledged. So Rory already had a trust fund from her grandparents. And then by some contrivance, her biological father, Christopher, gets stupidly rich. Right. So she not only has her grandparents, <laughs> she has her mother know who's apparently balling. Not not, but her not B-A-W, but like her ballin. Yeah, but she's got money now, apparently. Mm. Lorelai. Uh, her business is successful. And then 
you've got your grandparents and you know Richard left her some money when he died. It's not just all in Emily's bank account right. until she kicks the bucket. So she has, and then she has Logan offering how, how <laughs> offering her just this lovely place to go live, mm-hmm. to go write. So it's really difficult to muster up a lot of sympathy for Rory as a contemporary, as we are, because she has a safety net for her safety net. There are so many things that she can do. And there's there's never any danger of her being destitute. Where there was a little bit of pathos we had for Lorelai because she was in a difficult situation when she was a teenager. But, I mean, a big question on everybody's lips is how is she affording all these jaunts back and forth to London to sleep with her engaged boyfriend? Oh my god. For a while there, I didn't actually believe that she was actually going to London. I thought maybe she just was hiding the whole Logan thing Mm. and maybe driving to New York City and telling them that she was in London Mm. because she was so ashamed. Because my natural reaction would be, yeah, I'm ashamed to tell my mother that I'm yet again being a cheater. Mm -hmm. After that was such a big issue in the original run, right? Right, but... And that it's with Logan. (laughs) So Rory's cheating on this guy, Paul. And Logan is also cheating on a woman that he's engaged to. Mm. So, I mean, at some point, like, this is just who Rory is. She's comfortable cheating or or being the other woman. Uh, She lost her virginity to someone who's married. She's comfortable with doing whatever she wants. Yeah. Which was a critique that Emily had of Lorelai as well. Right. (laughs) Which itself is based in truth. The other issue that brings up to me is... I think baby boomers are not really sure how to write for us yet. So, I mean, we have people like Lena Dunham out there writing for millennials from our perspective, or at least people our age, their perspective. Attempting to, at least. Right. And I don't think, I don't think that like a generation is really a real thing. That unifies people. I think a lot of the stereotypes about baby boomers and Generation X, those are fallacious. But there is something to be said about us being a generation that graduated college in situations much, much worse economically than have existed in North America in the past 50 or 60 years, right? So, like, we graduated in a really difficult time. job markets go. Yeah. So... The way that we are structuring our lives is very, very different out of necessity. Those jobs that you get right out of school and have for the rest of your life, they don't exist anymore. Or, you know, folks who just have a high school degree and then find a job and they start from the bottom and then they're 60 years old and they're Mm -hmm. making six figures. And have a bomb-ass pension, too. Right. Like, that just doesn't really happen. That life doesn't exist (laughs) anymore. And so there is that disconnect between generations and and you can then begin to see why this this storyline with the millennials missed the mark. It does because it has actually compelled a lot of millennials to become entrepreneurs and take chances and it compelled uh, uh, it compelled me to start this fucking podcast. <laughs> right. But look, like the Black Lives Matter people, those people are 30 and younger. A lot of them. Mm-hmm. Like People our age are more engaged than our parents' generation was. You have to be more creative. They do. I, but we're more aware. We understand 
socially and politically a lot more, I think. I really believe that. Uh, this might be the Tumblr generation, the social justice warriors or whatever, but like that does create some good in the world. If only that translated to the polls. I know. And I really, oh, what really bugs me is when people criticize us for being the generation of participation trophies and, you know, perfect mm -hmm. attendance ribbons and that shit. Do you think that my five-year-old self invented that? No. <laughs> Do you know who invented that? <laughs> Baby boomers for their kids to feel good about their kids. like And to feel good about themselves and to not have to actually parent their kids. They're the ones who skipped the beat. But like, we didn't ask for that. No. <laughs> and well, I certainly didn't have that. No, you I did not have that I'm upbringing. I'm talking from an American perspective. <laughs> you had a very austere upbringing. <laughs> With school uniforms and strict adherence to British etiquette yes. and decorum. And a lot of shame if you didn't, not from your parents, from the school system, yeah. I mean. I'm not talking about your family. It's totally different. Yeah. That said, there are, the stereotype is there for a reason. There are a bunch of losers. <laughs> there are. There are, we, we know a few of them. <laughs> okay, fine. But we take exception, put it that way. And it's lazy, it's lazy writing. And there were a lot of lazy things about this revival. The Paul storyline just was terrible. It was not funny. Mm -hmm. it was never going to be funny. I think they tried to to hit maybe 20 Paul jokes and maybe landed oh two. Oh my god. They landed maybe two. There were just things that were supposed to come off as cute and didn't. Mm -hmm. So you notice, or I noticed in this version of the show, there were just a lot of jokes that maybe would have landed back then that don't anymore. I think the world has really changed a lot in the eight years since it's been off. And it's been 16 years since the show premiered. I I mean, this was like the year that Bush was inaugurated as president. Or 2001, sorry. But this was pre-Bush when the show premiered. Like, that's crazy to think about. It seems a world away. And so the way that we... First of all, the way that we consume media is totally different. Mm -hmm. And the way that we criticize on an episodic level, that didn't exist when Gilmore Girls came out. And as a culture, we're a lot more sensitive about certain things. We're a lot more aware. So these jokes about the fat guy at the pool, um, like Lorelai and Rory being sunned by these two child slaves, like those are, just aren't cute anymore. They're just, I don't know. I think they may have been viewed differently back then which wasn't that long ago but it still feels different. I, I saw a lot of people fangirling and fanboying over the life and death brigade and the fairly prominent role they got headed by logan to try and sweep ace off her feet <laughs> and ace. ace and take her somewhere and so they have this night of doing all sorts of life and death brigadey things including driving drunk i don't know if anybody mm. caught that part but that shit ain't funny it ain't cute like were we supposed to just not notice that they were all loaded and driving uh, just i don't know things that obscenely rich people do right like buy go to a club and then buy it like this is why i cannot like get that's on board. not even cute like that's no it's not it's terrible and i just will never be on board with this brigade because these are the sons of the men who Donald Trump is currently appointing to fill out his cabinet. Right. That's who these men are. And you can see a straight line between Mitchum Huntsberger, who is Rex Tillerson and who is Hollis Doyle. 
Hollis Doyle who played the oil magnet on yes. Scandal. Well, he literally played Hollis Doyle, Mitchum. Well, yes. The guy who plays Hollis Doyle is the same guy who plays Mitchum. So and, there's that synergy. And Hollis Doyle is Rex, whatever, Rex what Tillerson. the fuck is his name? Yeah, Rex Tillerson. Yeah, I, I cannot believe we're in a reality where that person with that name is the Secretary of State. <laughs> and how are we to believe that Lorelai Gilmore's daughter is okay with being in the social circle and thriving in it as an adulteress? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> that is giving me way too much Scarlet Letter right now. So <laughs> stop with the slut shaming, okay? No, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, I don't. I never got it in the first run. I didn't like it. It just it was, There's a certain uh, mysticism and ethereal fantasy quality to it that's appealing. Right. Like, right? You're like not, Mary Poppins flying under an mm, umbrella. You're not totally sure if it's real. It's kind of a flight of fancy, which I can see how that's appealing. But mm-hmm. but when you really decode it and sit and think what this all means, it's just, it's it's too much. These guys are like the skulls from Harvard, like these secret societies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to be extremely wealthy and privileged to even like know about it. And then they go on to become presidents and like CIA directors and shit like that. And secretaries of state. Right. For a Donald Trump presidency. In keeping with uh, how the world has changed outside of Gilmore Girls since the show premiered, did anyone else notice that the world of Gilmore Girls seemed a lot more diverse? There At Chilton, I noticed this, there were just a lot of extras who were non-white, which is not something I noticed in the first run. It didn't catch up. Maybe it caught up to where it would have been in 2010. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. I'm still not going to be giving them medals and ribbons for this because no. they're all secondary characters, which is fine. Like, this is what this is about. You want to see where everybody's been, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We had Lane and the Kims. Fine. We had Michelle. Who else did we have? Oh, well, Miss Patty. Okay. Is Puerto Rican. And Gypsy, I guess. And Gypsy which was... Which I'm not quite sure. She was I'm ambiguous. I'm still okay with that name being Gypsy. <laughs> <laughs> Right? Didn't that give I, you some pause? Yeah. Yeah. That, hmm. Like, who's named Gypsy anymore? Like, you name these characters. You give oh, them these the, names. The name... No, I'm not going to quibble about that because... I mean, she wasn't supposed to be a Gypsy, I don't think. But why name her Gypsy and I not Carol or something? Carol. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. Okay. I hear you, but I'm not going to get hung up on the name. There did seem to be a lot of tokenism in... Yeah, uh, kind of the back with like the extras. Like all of a sudden, there's five black people at Taylor's meeting. Which fine, fine, that's great. And a lot of people defend the show by saying, you know, it's it's set in suburban Connecticut. I'm like, well, like that was a choice to set it there. It's not like they were. Do you know what I mean? And the whole like, point is that Stars Hollow is kind of a tone onto itself. It's like they Brigadoon. do their own shit. It's Brigadoon. It's like it's not a real place. It's on another planet. They don't follow normal rules. So it can really be populated by the Simpsons, for all you know. But I am really glad that they seem to have discovered gay people. I mean, it's like they were hitting us over the head with it. Like, Michelle's first scene was like, I'm gay, I'm gay, I have a man. I have a husband. I'm gay, I'm gay. I have a husband. Did you hear? I'm gay. (laughs) And where he wants a baby, and I don't want one. Well, you were trying to make do Michelle's accent. I wasn't. I don't know what I was doing. Oh, no, I wasn't really trying. Oh, y- that wasn't very good. No, it really wasn't. 
Well, you had noticed something different about his accent. Yeah, Michelle's accent was totally different to me. It's, it's like he forgot what his accent was. <laughs> Or he went and lived a few years in Montreal. Yeah, because he's actually... Or Quebec City or something. He's French-Canadian. He's not French. So he he was actually originally doing this very cartoonish version of a French accent mm-hmm. for the show. So maybe this is closer to his real accent. Possibly, but it def- definitely sounded different yeah, to me. Yeah, definitely. Let us know if any of you thought the same thing. Mm-hmm. But how... In the first run of Gilmore Girls, I... I was struck as like a 2015 viewer by how little gay content there was. Because this is obviously a, like a very gay show. Very. Like gays are really into the show. You don't have Emily Gilmore and not have a swarm of gays <laughs> following her. You know she has a gardener or a stylist or something. <laughs> and this is Connecticut. Come on. Connecticut is filled with gays? I don't know. No, understand. but I mean it's a blue state. Okay, They're within it. the orbit of New York City. Okay. Stars Hollow is provincial, but come on. They have a gay pride parade now with possibly two participants <laughs> and a dog. Let's just close with a few etc. things from from this revival. Emily's bizarre new relationship with her house staff. I'm not sure I want to go there because I I would rather prefer it just didn't happen. <laughs> it was kind of cute that Rose Abdu, I think her name is, mm. she played Gypsy as well as this new maid Berta because you know that Emily had this rambunctious and contentious relationship with all of her her cooks and her waitstaff. Yes, like Murphy Brown's secretary. Yeah, and all of a sudden she's getting along with Berta and is taking in all her family. It's like she's sponsoring everybody to come in from Mexico. Like the entire extended family, and we just like I just <laughs> like is this supposed to symbolize her grief, the grieving that she's going through that she's no longer a heinous wretch to these people, <laughs> to her subordinates? Right. I, like another I point where they missed the mark for me there, but I do want to say that Emily's arc from. Winter, spring, summer to fall. I really enjoy it. All you've got to do is call. Right? And then we'll be there. (laughs) (laughs) And just know you've got a friend. Just stop. (laughs) I think they got it. (laughs) You wanted, and I think we both wanted, the show to end. We were speculating about what the last four words would be. That it would be between Emily and Mm Lorelai. Which I guess we knew it wouldn't. It wouldn't. Right, like I didn't. Know they just seem well. I just felt like they seem hen- hell bent on it being Lorelai and Rory. Like no matter how you yeah, may think of it, that's fine. No matter how you may think of the show for you personally, that's what the show is about. Right, it's about those. They two. are the Gilmore Girls. Those yes. two, and it became clear once Emily found this new life in Nantucket, mm-hmm. got this job as a docent, a very scary, right? scary She's... docent. Like, is it Halloween or is it just a regular old February day for Emily Gilmore? She loved giving this tour. Grotesque, apparently. (laughs) So it became clear that that story was kind of closing itself. And I mean, Emily wasn't even coming to the wedding, right? It's not like Nantucket is a hop, skip, and a jump. She She, she was definitely going. She only had but a few hours to get there if it went scheduled as planned. She could fly. All right. I don't know. New England people help us. There's no way that Emily would not have been at that wedding. There's just no way. But, I mean, it's like late the night before. She's still on an island. 
off the coast of Massachusetts, how is she going to get there? Do you think Lorelai sitting on that gazebo step at 7 in the morning with a bottle of champagne was being, walking down the aisle at 10 a.m.? <laughs> <laughs> like, that was going to be an evening wedding. Okay, fine. <laughs> I'm just saying. So I enjoyed Emily. Enjoyed Lorelai. Happy she's with Luke. I don't know you, Rory, at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know who you is, who you're trying to be. I know that we said a lot of negative stuff and there were some problems with the revival, but I think overall the highs were very, very high mm-hmm. and it, it outweighed the bad for me. I'm happy they made it. I genuinely have a good feeling when I think about those four episodes. I think maybe the format being stretched out challenged the, the show a lot. And it, it did make for some problems, but it also made for some freedom with the filmmaking. Like, the absolutely the beautiful. The cinematography was exactly, gorgeous. The wedding scene, something that they wouldn't have been able to do on the WB with that budget. An experiment like Stars Hollow the Musical, while it failed, was still something uh, ambitious and maybe worth trying. <laughs> we talked a lot about what we didn't like, but we still effing loved it. yeah (laughs) when it comes down to it and this is like that really tough teacher you've got who will you'll get your term paper back and it's full of red ink but then you still got a b plus or an a (laughs) minus because honestly if we hated it we wouldn't spend this much time dissecting it it wouldn't be worth it and i'm all in for some more gilmore girls if they want to come with another four seasons of loneliness for rory gilmore i'm all (laughs) aboard that ship If they're maybe going to tell us who the daddy is. (laughs) See, I just love dropping R&B references here. And did you get that one? What's that one? It's Boys to Men. Okay. Okay. Four Seasons of Loneliness. Just check in. I think it's Jess, by the way. The father. Who knows? Maybe it's Paul. Who? (laughs) Him? Very funny. That was made better by the appearance of Anne Veal from Arrested Development. (laughs) Mae Whitman. So one last thing about the Gilmore Girls. This is not what the show was ever about, but who would you rather? Dean, Jess, or Logan? Well, also, who would you have picked back then and who would you pick now? Are they different answers to that question? Yes. They are for you? Yes. I can tell you it would have never been Dean. I would never have been about that life. He's also way too tall for me. Okay. Still beautiful, but that was never going to be me. He's just so provincial. Oh, and oh excuse basic. you, Mr. No, Cosmopolitan. Really, really and true. Like, you knew from the jump he was just going to end up probably milking some cows or, you know, sacrificing everything he could possibly want to be in life just to be a father. To some basic woman. That is so rude. I mean, that's that's just... No, Dean was a very sweet and loving boyfriend. So if we're talking He's like simple. physical, my choices would be the same. Okay. Jess, a million times Jess. No, the first go around of Jess is way too skinny for you. Right, but they all were. Mm, so maybe Logan, actually... Logan. Maybe I would pick Logan just purely physically because he was always a douche. If we're talking about, like, who would you marry, I if I were 16, I would marry Dean. But if I were 32, I'd marry Jess. 
Uh, why is that funny? <laughs> why are you thinking about being married at 16? I don't know. You and Dean deserve each other. Some people do it. <laughs> it works for some people. <sighs> See, morally opposed to Logan. Through and through. Like the Jet Setter oh, lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. Very appealing. But that's coming from myself who has never really had a whole lot of money. Or any money, really. <laughs> So the prospect of like, okay, like you be with this person, he's he's gorgeous. You get you you have means and ways and access and money. Wonderful. You could think about making those compromises, possibly. But for Rory, who has all these things at her disposal, there's mm. no excuse. Yeah. So uh, let's get to it. Who? Then the thing is. <laughs> It's not a cut and dry answer. They were all undesirable. Oh my lord. They were all undesirable. The first go around, they were all undesirable. But if I had to pick one, it would be Jess. Okay. I'm not asking you to pick between Ryan Gosling and Ryan Reynolds. Like, no, that one's easy. Like you, that's easy. That's you, Ryan Gosling. You win either way. No, that's Ryan Gosling. That's easy. <laughs> like you win more with one, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> but there's really no losing. In this equation, between these three, there is losing. Then I would go with Jess... And now I would go with Jess. Okay. Correct. Well, you said you went with Dean back then. But I'm pro I'm very pro Jess now, so it's <laughs> it's fine. Hope you enjoyed our little chit chat about the Gilmore Girls revival. It was the television event of the year, for us at least. We were counting down the days, weeks, months for the longest while, and we were definitely in need of it after the election. <laughs> True. And now it's time to count down to Twin Peaks. I'm less excited about that. I am so... Oh my god. I'm trying to, not to get my hopes up because I'm not convinced it will happen like until it happens. But David Lynch did release a teaser recently. Him with a donut or something? He was eating a donut. I don't know what that has to do with Twin Peaks, but I'm on board. Let us know what you thought. Definitely answer the question, Jess, Dean, or Logan. We want to know. It needs to be settled once and for all. Jess, Dean, or Logan, then and now. Let us know. From our previous TV episode, the or the Body Serve TV Awards, there were a few loose ends that we didn't quite get to. Mm -hmm. So you wanted, you insisted even, that we <laughs> tack on a few, a few et ceteras. Yeah, I wanted to do a whole other TV episode. Like, including Gilmore Girls, but way more of the stuff we failed to mention. So, number one, I know I, like, I drag on about Transparent a lot. You do. It is, it's my favorite current TV show. And there was just a lot of richness and a lot of flaws in the season that made it really special for me. The, kind of the episode and the scene that sticks out is when Josh and Shay take off and then run around this abandoned water park. So the show has gotten a lot of criticism kind of throughout its run for A, employing a male actor, um, a man who, uh, who identifies as male, as a trans woman. And there have been some issues about representation, racially and otherwise. And so I think this episode was trying to hit that head on. And so... Josh and Shay have this big fight because it's clear that Josh is horrible. Like, every woman that comes into contact with Josh suffers. Rita killed herself. Not saying that it's his fault, but <laughs> it happened. 
Uh, <laughs> Rabbi Raquel is having an extreme personal crisis and a crisis of faith after her miscarriage, but also having to deal with him and, and his family, plan, yes. right? the family too. And the sister. And now God. having to endure Sarah Pfefferman planning these events with the, with the temple. And now there's Shay who Josh wants to have this little adventure with. And so they're having fun, whatever, running around this place. And then he, they start to become involved and he makes some really offensive assumptions about who she is and what she's done for a living assuming that she's a sex worker just mm -hmm. made some really horrible comments saying you know i maybe i'm just not ready for this even though this these romantic feelings happen kind of organically and so she goes into this diatribe and trace lissette who is the actress has been given a chance to shine finally and she says i'm not your fucking adventure and so to me, she's not only talking to Josh, but she's talking about the show in general. And it may have been a little bit heavy-handed coming from the show and a way to kind of address those criticisms, but it was something that, that really stuck out for me. I also think the show was using that story to make the point that, yes, we should be held to a higher standard because we are tackling these issues. And this is a show about literally a trans parent. Mm-hmm. But also, Josh's questions and behavior is 99.5% of the general population. We, we yes. take for granted that trans issues are more apparent and in the spotlight these days, which they are. And they've progressed at a speed previously unforeseen in such a short period of time for a minority group. Mm -hmm. Like... And the, well, the kind of vocabulary associated with trans issues is fairly complex mm -hmm. and it's taken people, including us, a while to catch up even, and use the words even confidently. Even like say right? 10, six years ago, mm -hmm. prominent people, there's, you can find traces of it on the internet all over the place where they've been making quote unquote tranny jokes. Yeah. You remember Christian Soriano? That was like yeah. his his catchphrase there is a and that was totally okay. Yeah, there's at least five specific instances of people now who you'd be like, oh, damn. Mm -hmm. But that that's the climate that it was back then. And so for Josh to be making those kinds of horrible statements that are tied to his privilege, sure, but they're also reflective of society at large. And so I don't think it's as cut and dry and as simplistic as you make, okay. it, make it out to be. I do think that we have to address the possibility that the show is using a trans actress like Trace Lissette in a similar way that Josh is using her. N with good intentions, I'm sure. But it's taken a while for them to give her anything with meat on it. And to be fair, this is a trans actress who you've cast as a sex worker. And they address in that episode that that's a common assumption about trans women. That that's the only thing they can do to make money. You know, this obviously is not true. But there were instances in this third season. Is it the third season? I, I, I think. Know. Of them trying to address the sort of some of the racial problems, especially on a surface level. Because at the end, this is still a show about very privileged white people mm -hmm. who are Jewish, who are in a religious minority, but white people nonetheless, 
who don't live in a world with, where many trans people do live. And Mora is not going to suffer in all of the same ways as a lot of trans people probably watching the show because of who she is. In the same way that Caitlyn Jenner isn't the best quote-unquote role model for trans issues because she doesn't represent the majority of trans people. Right? Right. And she's a dumbass, unfortunately. There is that too. Yeah. What do you want to say? A lot of these are, you'll be, I guess I'll be leading the last few. You okay. talk about Atlanta, which is a show that is critically acclaimed and much beloved. We enjoyed it. I don't love it. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I was reading the AV Club and they actually gave the actor who plays Paperboy their award for best TV performance of the year of anyone if there's somebody to get an award from that show it's him mm -hmm. he was really good right there are a lot of layers to that performance he comes off as very very funny very witty in a restrained kind of way and it sort of bucks a lot of stereotypes that you might expect you know this violent up-and-coming hip-hop artist to because he presents himself as very educated Right. And very smart. Mm. I mean, those are the two same things, but <laughs> I mean, without me sitting here calling a black person eloquent <laughs> or articulate or articulate is, is the loaded, is word, the loaded yeah. word, but it was presented in a way where it wasn't something that you should question as being strange. Yeah. The show is just, just really ambitious in what it's willing to try out. That standalone episode where toward the end of the season where it was just so weird what was that one again yeah it was like a talk show appearance by paperboy yes. and they even made mm -hmm. up these fake commercials it felt like a very extended Chappelle show sketch almost my qualm with that show is i don't see why this show should be getting so much critical acclaim and love when insecure isn't being given the same and how much of that is because insecure is helmed by a woman as opposed to a man oh i mean i think insecure is getting a lot of attention I don't know, like the the award, like it just seems that the end of year stuff, the award stuff, Atlanta of the two is the one that's being pushed. Okay. And I think Insecure is a better show, personally. All right. Atlanta is more in the vein of like these auteur comedies like it's, Louis and... It's very man. That's my problem <laughs> with it. You know, it, it just has the stamp of a man all over it. Okay. Stranger Things. Stranger Things is a show that I forgot to mention because you haven't watched it. It's not really your thing. Nope, not my bag. I love, oh my God, I've loved Winona Ryder forever. Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands are two of my all-time favorite movies. You stood by her while she was on trial for Grand Theft <laughs> Larceny. Right. So the show, I mean, just the homage to the Goonies to Stand By Me, to all these 80s horror and kids movies that we, well, I grew up loving, is just too much. I absolutely adored Stranger Things. And I have some theories about the ending, so DM me. High Maintenance was another show that we watched. One of the maybe 30 shows we picked up in 2016 <laughs> that we didn't get to mention on the award show. It would have been under our best new show category. Mm -hmm. And it was it was enjoyable. It was six episodes based on a long-running web series, which we have never seen, actually. The episode with the dog is one of the best episodes I've seen all year. Mm -hmm. It was 
like nothing I've ever experienced before. At the at the beginning, it was like, is this really going to be an episode based on a dog's perspective? Great. <laughs> and it was unbelievable. It was so great. We just finished season seven of Shameless last night. And I am just in awe of Fiona Gallagher, played by Emmy Rossum. She just gets better and better. And now that this season allowed her to focus on Fiona and develop and better herself, separate and apart from being responsible for all those kids, mm-hmm. she was able to shine even more. Fiona, to me, has always been the anchor of this show. No doubt. And so when this salary dispute was going on, I think her, her best argument is that the show does not work without her. And by salary dispute, you mean... William H. Macy has been paid way more than her for the whole run of the series. Which, you know, he was the star. He was the one bringing the audience initially. Fine. But Fiona is clearly the protagonist to me. And the show can work without William H. Macy. As much as I like him as an actor. It doesn't work without Fiona. There's just no point of going on to me. So that's her best bargaining chip. And to see them confidently have a seventh season where a lot of Showtime shows are just like cannibalizing or you have Dexter on your mind (laughs) (laughs) are are self-destructing. I mean, (laughs) at that point, the show is really I mean, it's grappling with the death of these characters mother who was absent, who was a drug addict. They had a really bad relationship with her. And so that opens up a lot of dramatic possibilities, I think, going into the last season and gave Emmy Rossum another chance to give like a blowout scene yelling at her father, Frank. Two things from this season, the writers and the actors, the producers, everybody involved, they were able to create a season and a season finale that felt like a series finale Mm -hmm. that you'd have been satisfied with. And then to be like, hold up, we're not done yet, we're coming back. (laughs) And also, there's, it's not a coincidence that Fiona and Emmy Rossum were able to be so great this season when her character wasn't tied needlessly and incessantly to a man, Mm -hmm. which has been the case throughout the entire run of the season, of the series. And we finally get... Fiona just doing her Mm -hmm. and yes, still having sex, but doing it on Tinder and all these other apps and just having gratuitous sex whenever she needs to, or feels like she wants to (laughs) and not trying to take care of somebody else in her life. Mm -hmm. But do you think she's going to get screwed by this guy selling her the apartment building? I really do. They were trying to foreshadow Mm -hmm. that, right? Yeah. That's what's going to happen. Club de Cuervos. If you are not watching the show, I beseech you watch it netflix original it's it's spanish language with subtitles it's so good guay (laughs) (laughs) it's okay so it's set in mexico in a smaller city it's about a football club and a a sibling rivalry for battling for control of their father's football club club de cueros exactly the father dies and then the son and daughter they just go back and forth fighting over this club right Mm. so the actress who plays isabel 
is like your favorite actor of any gender on television. There's a recency effect to this because we just finished watching yeah. it. But her physical comedy acting and her acting in general is it's it's so good. It it, it just makes me feel so good watching her on screen. I wish I didn't have to read the subtitles because I want to see, watch her face the whole time. See, I, she's so funny. I speak a little bit of Spanish, oh, so it's not oh, you, know, you do. It's wow, not that difficult wow. for me, you know. I wish yeah. you could see him like tossing his hair back. <laughs> <laughs> that show is funny. Definitely check it out. Give it a chance. Chava Iglesias, Isabel. So there's Isabel Iglesias, who is the one I love, and then her brother. Chava Salvador Salvador which nickname is Chava Chava Iglesias he's the biggest piece of shit you'll ever see on TV <laughs> like if he were to be run over by a 10 like a succession of buses and then have a helicopter drop out of the sky and explode on his face it still would not have been enough suffering <laughs> for this piece of shit okay I think you have something to speak to a therapist about I have Chava issues <laughs> <laughs> Mozart in the Jungle is another under-the-radar show, although it won the Golden Globe for Best Comedy last year. And Best Actor in a Comedy. Yes, for the great and wonderful... Gael Garcia Bernal. Who has been the bay since Itumama Tambien. Which is a full 16 years now, 16, 17 oh years. Oh my god, no, that's not possible. 2001. Okay, yeah. okay just 15. 15 years, Okay. <laughs> But Gael just dances across the screen. It's so lyrical, his performance. Mm. He's playing this conductor. It's about the New York Symphony. I grew up playing music, so this... The clarinet? Yes. This world, seeing this world on TV is very, very cool. The characters, they're so rich. Except for Hailai, who is the... Of course, there's always some white woman or man dragging down these shows always i'm sort of i am coming around on highlight a little bit she was much Especially better toward the end of much the season, better yes this but, is what this is season three yeah. the end of season three she was much better and a lot a lot of it has to do with the writing right yeah yeah because she's perfectly capable as an actress right she's fine i'm mean, just yeah. amazing but she's fine and watch the season for monica bellucci alone mm. the goddess la divina she was only in there for five episodes, like the first five episodes, but the two of them, her and Gail, <laughs> like American actors could never. <laughs> I mean, Monica Bellucci is fire. Everyone knows that. Like she explodes off the screen. Still in her 50s, mm -hmm. blowing up shit with her acting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, two more shows that we just started watching. And they're only six episode seasons, so it was really easy to get through. Chewing Gum and Fleabag. So they, they have a lot in common. They're both British productions. They're both based on plays written by the creator, who also happens to be the star of the show. And they're both women. And they both have a lot to do with sex. And they both feature the main character speaking directly to the camera. That's, that's a lot in common. Yes. So Chewing Gum takes place in an estate in public housing in a low-income area of London. A young African-British woman whose family is very religious 
She wants to lose her virginity. She's obsessed with sex. Literally, that is what the show is about. But she is, <laughs> she's grown and has no concept of anything to do with sex. Right. Because she's been so sheltered. Or any social skills or at all. Or personal hygiene. Like, she's got a long way to go. <laughs> but she's hilarious. She is so appealing and so funny. I absolutely love that show. And then Fleabag is darker, but... The less, the lesser of the two for me. Okay. I mean, we haven't seen the whole season yet, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm definitely really enjoying Fleabag too. Yeah, but it's, it's definitely, good. it's like bounded by this central tragedy that kind of all the comedy comes out of. So it's a bit darker. Yeah. So if you were like us and hadn't heard about those last two shows, Chewing Gum and Fleabag, <laughs> I was I was laughing to myself when I say Fleabag. Uh, then we are here to tell you, give it a go. Yeah, you can finish it off in one night. And uh, Nashville is back. And I have to go back to watching it because you love it. Yeah, just, just, just two nights ago. That first episode was, I think it was promising though. It was better. It was never as bad as you thought it was. Mm. I said to him, I have some really bad news for you. And he (laughs) goes, what? It's TV related. He's like, I'm going to have to watch something I don't want to watch, right? I'm like, well, guess which show just came back? They were supposed to come back in January, but the first episode's out. I forget what you guessed at first, but when I told you it was Nashville, that was clearly a worse option for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it pains me so much because I love Connie Britton. We're going to do a whole episode on Friday Night Lights one of these days because it is the most perfect television series ever in history. I don't know. You might need to get a guest host for that episode. <gasps> what? Because I'm so far... I thought we loved that together. I do, I do. But I'm so far removed from it that I'd have to go back and watch pretty much the whole thing. And then you know I'm not a serial rewatcher. Mm-hmm. I've watched like the whole are. thing like five times. I know. We have the whole if series. We, if you want to do an entire episode about the Matt Saracen dad dying episode... Like, we can do that. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> so, that brings us to the actual end of season two of The Body Surf, the addendum. We, uh, we're coming to you from a Toronto that is currently 15 degrees, which in Celsius, I don't, I don't know what that is in Celsius, it's minus something. So, we wish you all a wonderful holiday season, get some rest, drink some eggnog, and uh, thank you again for sticking with us and listening. You can find me on Twitter. I'm Jonathan at SportsscribeCA. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. The podcast is The Body Serve at The Body Serve. And give us a, uh, a nice review for Christmas. <laughs> that's all we want. That's, that's all you want? I have a longer list. Yeah, but we're not asking listeners. <laughs> So we don't need a Kickstarter. We just need a good review. And we will see you all in 2017. Till next time.